another occasion, the blind boy said, "Did you hear that? The birds are about to fly." Once upon a time, there was a girl named Cinderella who sleep in a fireplace. We love stories. It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. Such a pleasure for me to be with you today. We've got a really great hour prepared for you. You're going to hear from Margaret Reed McDonald, a, a story called "The Little Old Woman Who Hated Housework." You're going to hear from Sarah Malone with a story called "A Blind Boy Catches a Bird," and you'll hear from Willie Claflin, a story called "Cinderella and the Three Bears." Yes, you. Heard that right? Cinderella and the Three Bears. Willie will explain everything. But first, to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Lacey Ivy, one of our assistant producers. Lacey, it's great to have you with me. It's so good to be here. You know, we're going to hear a Dolores Hydock story today. Dolores, of course, uh, lived for many years in Pennsylvania. Lives now in Alabama. Tell us a little bit about No Time to Write. This story is actually not Dolores's own story, which she tells a lot of her own things yeah. whenever we listen to her. But this story comes from a collection of journal entries that she reads about this woman who lived in like the 1800s. Hmm. And so she tells her story and what these journal entries mean to her and how she interprets them, reading them from like a future perspective. Mm. And Dolores really sort of delivers these uh, pieces with all of the passion and emotional involvement as though they were her own writings. Right? She does. Yeah. yeah. The story is No Time to Write, and we're going to hear it from Dolores Hydock here on The Appleseed. The diary entries come further and further apart. There's a space of a year, then two, then seven. Just as in modern day families where there are lots of pictures of the oldest child, then fewer of the next one and fewer still of the younger ones, Sally devotes a whole diary entry to tell about her oldest child, a daughter named Sally, named after her mother and grandmother. But the next diary entry is seven years later and Sally simply mentions that there are two more children, Lulu and Sterling Jr., children who dearly loved their grandmother back in Florence, a grandma they call Bama. Sally writes, Little Sally is so pretty. She is eight years old now, and I have never cut off her hair. It is nearly down to her waist. Her papa and I are her teachers, and she is spelling in words of three syllables. Lulu is as fat as ever and full believes that she can read. One day the hearth looked soiled and Lulu asked her grandma what made it look so dirty. Her grandma told her that the men spit on it so much she could not keep it clean. Shortly afterwards, Lulu was told to wipe her nose. She said, my nose is like the hearth, Bama. I cannot keep it clean. Little Sterling has been talking about turkey ever since Christmas. Nearly everything he sees, he says it looks like a turkey. He told his nurse Maudie that she looked like a turkey and said his puppy's tail looks like a piece of turkey. He likes to say that he loves Papa and Mama and all Buddy. An entry nearly three years later reports that a fourth child, Foster, is already two and a half years old. And though Sally hopes that this is the last one. In fact, two more souls are given to her safekeeping. Another son, 
Joe, and a daughter, Bessie Mae. In 1886, 16 years after she married and moved to Arkansas, Sally writes from Florence. August 8, 1886. It is a lovely Sabbath evening. Two long, long years have passed since I last penned some lines in my dear journal. We are again in Florence. We have rented out our place in Arkansas and are living with Ma on account of my dear husband's health. He has had something the matter with his kidneys for two years. Oh God, my daily prayer is that he may be spared many, many years to cheer me with his presence. Sally is now 14 years old and nearly as tall as I am. She attends the female school and is quite smart in her studies. Lulu is 10 years of age and can read in the fifth reader. Both of the girls play on the piano. Sterley, Foster, and Joe are splendid-looking boys, and Bessie May is a little beauty who smiles nearly all the time. It's the hurried entry of a busy woman. You can picture her in her late thirties, bustling about the beautiful old home place where she once wrote about never wanting to grow up, now bearing the grown-up cares of looking after an aging mother, a sick husband, and six growing children. There is just one more diary entry, written 15 months after that last one. November 27, 1887. How many sad, oh, double sad moments have I spent since I last wrote? On the 30th of January, my dear old mother said goodbye to earthly troubles, for she certainly had many. She breathed her last just as the sun was setting. Oh, how I grieved when she left me, for no one ever loved a mother better than I loved mine. Scarce eleven months had passed since I came to live with her. It seemed that I came here just to see her die. Though it seemed that I had enough to bear, still another great trial had to come, for my Sally, my dear, loved daughter, my firstborn, just fifteen years old, left us on the first of August. Yes, in six short months, my two loved ones have gone, gone. How can I bear it? My blessed Savior, teach me to feel that all you do is right, though my poor heart is nearly broken. Ma lived nine days and Sally three weeks after they were taken, one with pneumonia, the other with fever. How we nurse them, but how powerless we poor mortals are when death comes. My heart is so pent up with grief that I cannot write what I wish. May God help my dear husband and myself to bear up under this sad, sad parting. And oh, may we all meet again. Take me home, let me see what is left that I know. Can it be that the old house is gone? The dear friends of my childhood indeed must be few, and I must lament all alone. But yet I'll return to the place of my birth, where my children have played at the door. Where they pulled the white blossoms that garnished the earth 
which will echo their footsteps no more. Take me home to the place where my little ones sleep. Oh, Grandpa lies buried close by. O'er the graves of the loved ones I long for to weep. And among them to rest when I die. There are 18 blank pages left in the journal. Sally and her husband, Sturley, lived another 10 years, but she never again picked up her pen to share her thoughts with her dear companion. Sterling died in April of 1897, and Sally died just eight months later at the age of 49. There is no record or memory of what caused her death. Five children were left behind, Bessie May, the youngest, was only 12 years old when her mother died. Sterling Jr., the one who used to say that he loved Papa and Mama and Allbody, Sterling Jr. was the one who found and kept the diaries and passed them on to his grandchildren, who so generously shared them with us. After a few years, the house, Courtview, was sold to the O'Neill family, and Emmett O'Neill, who, like his father, Edward O'Neill, would become governor of Alabama, lived in that house for 11 years. The house eventually became the property of what is now the University of North Alabama and was renamed Rogers Hall. But it will never again be Rogers Hall to me. To me, it will always be Courtview. Not just a beautiful building, but a home. And its rooms are never empty. There's a 12-year-old girl practicing the piano in the parlor before breakfast. She's 13 years old, running through the hall to the back steps, slipping downstairs to visit Jane and make ginger cake. She's 14, sitting on the front porch swing, talking with the Yankees, but not inviting them in. She's 15 upstairs in her room, the room with the high bed and long curtains swaying in a slight spring breeze, carefully writing backwards about her secret loves. She is 16, the war is over, and she's back downstairs entertaining her friends with a candy stew, her dress dusted with flour, her cheeks flushed as she laughs and flirts with six bows at once. She's a young woman of 21, standing in the front parlor in a beautiful dress, a long veil caught up with sprigs of white flowers, placing her heart and hand in the care of a man who loved her since she was a child. She's a grown woman upstairs, wandering through bedrooms that are dark with grief as she says goodbye to her mother, her oldest child, her husband, to life itself. Did she ever pick up that journal again? Was there maybe some warm summer day? She's upstairs in her room, she opens a drawer. There it is, the brown cover, the cracked spine. Does she sit on the edge of the high bed, open the book, turn the page, reading and remembering days of childhood, of privilege, of compositions and candy stews, of typhoid fever and fear. Then she closes the book, puts it back in the drawer, pushes it shut, 
Why did she never write again? Sally left behind one small drawing, a little sketch of a farmhouse sheltered by lush trees, someone standing at the bottom of the front steps waving an empty wagon off to one side. After all those expensive drawing lessons, it's the only picture she left us. But it's her words that paint the picture for us. Not the whole picture, just a tiny dot here, a tiny dot there. The small story of a girl growing up. But if we connect the tiny dots of her days, a larger picture begins to emerge. A picture of a world of innocence colliding with a world of loss. Ordinary days transformed by extraordinary times. It's the ordinary days the tiny dots that make up a life, her life, your life, my life, any life. And there is a rhythm to all of our days, just as there was a rhythm to hers. I got up at five o'clock and walked about until breakfast. After breakfast, after dinner, after supper, I read my Bible, prayed, and went to bed. It's what we all do. We get up and walk about until it's time to go to bed, and then we get up the next morning and walk about some more. And it's the tiny dots of all our ordinary days together that make history. And it's the pressing of our feet against the earth as we all walk about that makes our small, precious world go around. Dolores Hydock with a piece taken from the journals of Sally Independence Foster. A Sweet Strangeness Thrills My Heart is the name of the entire collection of those Sally Independence Foster stories. And these are kind of Civil War era and just post-Civil War era stories. And of course, underneath Dolores Hydock's performance of that story, you heard that beautiful music. That music is arranged and performed by musicologist Bobby Horton. It was a real pleasure to have that going by as we were getting that great performance from Dolores. Lacey Ivy, tell me what you love so much about that piece. I just love that this is a real example of how stories are passed down because you just talk about it all the time of, oh, there's these history books we've found or the, there's these old tales that have been passed down and told from person to person. But you never really think about how the things of a normal everyday life can be passed down and be a story for somebody else and that they can mean something to them. Yeah. And that, I think that's just so cool. She takes these stories and she reads them in such a way that makes them real and makes them personal because they are meant to be that way. And they're just as much of a story as any other history book or textbook that we find. And they're, and they're just about being human, which yeah. I think is something we all need sometimes. Delivering the story of another person as though it's your own story. That's a really wonderful way to bridge the gap between us and the, <laughs> and the people whose stories we're telling. What a pleasure to hear that story from Dolores Hydock. Again, taken from the journals of Sally Independence Foster. Journals kept between 1861 and 1887. I think I said a moment ago that Sally was born in 1861. She wasn't. She was 12 years old in 1861 when she began keeping journals and kept those diaries for another 26 years. Pleasure to hear that story. And Lacey, thanks for joining me here. Yeah, thank you for having me. And there's a whole lot more coming up on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. 
Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. A moment ago, if you're just joining us, uh, you heard a moment ago a story from Dolores Hydock, a story called No Time to Ride. It's from a collection of stories called A Sweet Strangeness Thrills My Heart, the journals of Sally Independence Foster, a life told in story by storyteller Dolores Hydock. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Willie Claflin, a story called Cinderella and the Three Bears, but first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes spark stories for you to share uh, around the kitchen table or the living room, here's a memory of mine. It's about, well, it's about pirates, and it's today's entry of the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. When I was in elementary school, every once in a while, when we'd been very good, we'd all be herded into the cafeteria, carrying our chairs, and we'd sit in rows with an aisle down the middle, and Mr. Page, the principal, rolled a big cart into the aisle, and on that cart was a big reel-to-reel film projector. And they'd turn the lights out, and on came the projector. Movie magic right there in the cafeteria of Alpine Elementary School. That's how I saw The Legend of Sleepy Hollow for the first time and Gus, the Tim Conway, Don Knotts movie about the mule who kicks field goals. And it's the way I first saw Return from Witch Mountain, the sequel to Escape to Witch Mountain, in which brother and sister Tony and Tia think they just have magic powers but wind up being from another planet. It's kind of hard to explain. In the sequel, the bad guys are played by Betty Davis and Christopher Lee, and the kids befriend a bunch of lovable, would-be tough kids called the Earthquake Gang. In fact, when you meet the Earthquake Gang, they're running away from another gang called the Golden Goons, and Tia saves them by using her outer space magic powers. And I gotta say, when I saw the Earthquake Gang on screen, I decided I was gonna have a gang just like that. I recruited my little brother Joe and our best friends James and Jeff Lamping, and we made a gang. We even built a clubhouse. It was made out of a pile of old doors someone was getting rid of. My dad had brought the doors into our backyard to do something artsy with but he was slow on the draw, so we dragged them out into the empty field behind our house, and we built a fort. Think of the way you might build a fort out of blankets in the living room. It's pretty much that, but made out of doors, right? That was kind of our clubhouse. And we took a crayon bucket out there, and we drew a big red devil on the main door of the fort, and we called ourselves the Red Devils. Of course, when my folks found out, they weren't crazy about the name of our gang. We were God-fearing folks, after all, and the notion of their kids being in a gang called the Red Devils was enough to make my dad sit us down and read to us some particularly nasty passages about what a rascal Satan is. And, well, it worked. We decided to call ourselves something else. But the truth is, the picture of the Red Devil on the clubhouse was... Well, it was awesome, so we decided not to get rid of it, just change it a little bit. We drew a long purple coat on the devil, and under it, a shirt with enormous floppy cuffs, and we put a big admiral's hat on him, and we changed one of his hands into a hook. It was perfect. 
the Red Devils no more. We were now the Pirates. We were in a gang called the Pirates, and we'd never felt so cool. And the clubhouse was just the beginning. We went to my mom, and we asked her if she would sew us some club patches. And listen, I don't know what you look back on as a sure sign of your mother's love for you, but I look back on the crazy sewing things we had my mom do. One Halloween, my brother and I both wanted to go trick-or-treating as Chewbacca. My mom made us Chewbacca costumes, two of them, one for him, one for me. And one time I got tired of having Star Wars action figures and wanted Raiders of the Lost Ark action figures instead. And my mom sewed Raiders of the Lost Ark costumes for my action figures. That was my mom. And now here she was making us club patches. We drew little skulls on pieces of pale yellow felt, and my mom cut the skulls out and sewed them onto little black fields and then sewed the patches at our request on the insides of our jacket collars. That way, on the playground, no one would know we were even part of a gang called the Pirates. But if we met each other, if we met another gang member, we could turn the inside of our collar out to show the patch. And that way we could know a gang member from the average kid on the playground. Never mind that there were only four of us. We were the Pirates. I don't know how we finally disbanded. We probably just got into breakdancing or something and the pirate fever wore off. But while it lasted... Man, being part of a pirate crew was the best. Good guy pirates, we were, to be sure, honor-bound to take care of any trouble in our neighborhood with piratey dispatch, a buckle and a swash, and never take the credit for it. Part of the code. I hang out with my brother from time to time now, though he lives far away, and I see the life of doing good that has sprung in his life from our pirate gang days. I haven't seen James or Jeff Lamping in 30 years, but when I see them again, I'm going to ask to see the inside of their jacket collars, just in case. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. There's a lot coming up. Stories from Margaret Reed McDonald, Sarah Malone, and Willie Claflin. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Through the great books that we love, the films that we choose to see, the food that we share, and the songs that we remember, and of course, the tales that get passed down from teller to listener, sometimes through generations and generations. And talking about some of the great ways in which stories get into our lives is something that we love to do with friends here on The Appleseed, and I'm joined by a longtime friend of the show, Noah Baum, the wonderful storyteller and author of the book The Land Twice Promised and also How the Birds Became Friends, available for pre-order before September and after September, of course, you can find information about that book on uh, her website, noahbaum.com. Noah, it's always such a pleasure to have you with me. Noah, thanks for joining me. 
Thanks for having me. It's so great to be with you, Sam. <laughs> you have a wonderful story. Uh, we've played it here on the show, a story called My Grandmother's Gefilte Fish. And we <laughs> love food memories. You know, food memories take us down into a very rich place in terms of storytelling and conversation. Tell us a little more than we already know about your grandmother's gefilte fish. No, it's one of those memories that just never go away. <laughs> with my grandmother's gefilte fish, especially because it was so unique, you know, it's not something she did every day. Yeah. So it was just like two or three times a year because it was this big deal. It was a lot of work. Yeah. And she did it from scratch. It's not like she went to the supermarket and bought gefilte fish in a jar. <laughs> For those of you who are not familiar, gefilte fish is an Eastern European delicacy. Now, what do we mean by delicacy? The Jews in Eastern Europe were so poor that the food, like every traditional food, that becomes sacred and traditional is really the food that was easiest and cheapest to get. Hmm. And so what's the cheapest fish that you can get? It's the carp. They're the bottom dwellers. They're always the cheapest. Right. So you get the carp and then you have a family of so many children. How are you going to feed them? You have to make that one fish stretch. So you mince it and you add to it, you know, breadcrumbs and all sorts of fillers. And then you make these fish patties. And it becomes this delicacy. So it always, <laughs> always makes me wonder, you know, what is it that becomes sacred in our lives? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's such an interesting question, isn't it? Yeah. And so yeah. often we think that sacred is something lofty and, you know, out of our reach or something that you have to aspire to. But the sacred is what helps us survive. The yeah. sacred is what gives meaning to our life and what, what sustains us. Yeah. And, and it can be something, as you say, something very simple, you know, as you're talking about your grandmother's gefilte fish, I'm remembering a visit that I made to my mother's house some years ago. Uh, I, I, you know, I hadn't been a child in a long time. <laughs> and my mother saw me at the door and she said, you know, you look hungry. Can I make you something to eat? And, and I sat down and talked with my folks and my mom made me a grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Oh. <laughs> and she put it down in front of me. And I mean, it was a pretty regular sandwich, but I thought, oh gosh, this this suddenly took me back to when I was six years old, you know, and there was, as you describe, a sacredness to that experience, yeah. even though it was pretty simple, even comical, some would say, you know, yeah. but I felt these, again, sacred feelings. Yeah. Yes. And the, the gefilte fish was a big deal because she made it from scratch. So you have yeah. to buy the fish. Right. And it has to be fresh. Heaven forbid that the fish will sit in the fridge even for one hour. Right. So the fish lived in the bathtub for two or three days until it was right before the holiday and it was time to take it out of the bathtub and then scrape off the scales and cut it. And then she had this mach machine. It was the greatest, the latest technology that <laughs> minced the fish and it would attach to the, it's attached to the counter, to yeah. the kitchen counter. I don't know if you have them, I'm sure you've had them here but it's like this um, metal contraption. It's, it's attached to the counter and mm -hmm. it has this handle and you put the chunks of fish at the top and then you 
roll and roll oh, and roll sure. the handle and yeah. it comes out minced on the other side into a bowl and you know that's just the preparation <laughs> man you take it and then you put all the fillers and then you mince it and then you stick it in boiling water so it was just this long 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 procedure yeah and i just i mean i love the part that the fish was in the bathtub that was my favorite part <laughs> Then there was the part that she killed the fish, which I hated. Yeah, I imagine that I would just kind of come in sporadically to watch the process because that was just way too boring. Yeah. Well, I, I <laughs> as as you talk about that, I find myself wondering if it, uh, because it seems to me like it would be almost just as sacred if you if that preparation and everything belonged solely to your grandmother and you were left just to remember it. <laughs> or if you learned to do it yourself. No way. Absolutely no way. <laughs> a, I never stuck around to see the whole process. I just waited for it to appear on my plate. And then it was, yeah. it was chilled and it was delicious. And because she was from Poland, they always added sugar to everything. So it was oh, wow. a little sweet. And I just loved it. And every time that I would see her kill that fish, I would swear that I will never eat gefilte fish again. And then, of course, I would eat it because I loved it so much. <laughs> <laughs> but to do it, first of all, she never taught you anything. She she shooed you out of the kitchen. So you kind of peeked in and yeah. because it, she, she just, it, it wasn't her thing though. She wasn't the kind of grandmother that loved cooking yeah. or that that was her thing. It's just that there were certain things that you did, certain yeah. things that were part of the tradition and you did them. Follow a food memory down into a tale, and you can have a tale that you can tell around the kitchen table or the living room. And of course, that kind of storytelling makes for memories that last a lifetime. It's been a pleasure to chat with Noah Baum. Noah, such a pleasure to have you with me. Thank you so, so much, Sam. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with the great storyteller Noah Baum about gefilte fish. There's a lot more coming up. Stick around for a story from Willie Claflin called Cinderella and the Three Bears. It's coming up in just a moment. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you here on this episode of The Apple Seed. There's a lot more coming up. In fact, up next, you're going to hear a story from Willie Claflin and his storytelling companion, the puppet Maynard Moose. They've been telling stories together for years and years and years. And this is one called Cinderella and the Three Bears. Yeah, think about that. You heard it right. Cinderella and the Three Bears from Willie Claflin and Maynard Moose here on The Apple Seed. Now I would like to tell my little favorite Halloween story. This is called Cinderella and the Three Bears. <laughs> it is a traditional mother moose story passed down in a matrilinear fashion until my particular epoch. <laughs> Once upon a time there was a girl named Cinderella who sleep in a fireplace. <laughs> she lived with three stepsister bears. There was a mommy stepsister bear, a daddy stepsister bear, and a little baby stepsister bear. And they all lived in a shoe. It was a big, big shoe. 
for one day the handsome prince's messenger come to the door and go, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> there is going to be a ball at the palace and Cinderella, you can't go because you are filthy from sleeping in a fireplace. We do not want anybody who is filthy at the ball, but even though you bears are extremely uglified, you can go. <laughs> so the three bears put on their gowns and went to the ball and poor Cinderella. In a fireplace, she start to cry. Her tears go sploop, sploop, sploop. And before long, she was sitting in a dirty little puddle. She cried more and more, and the puddle get bigger and bigger and bigger until finally it turned into a little river across the floor because by the door was half an inch lower than by the fireplace. And then down the front steps, make a filthy little waterfall. Sploosh, sploosh, sploosh. <laughs> well, about that time, who should come by but the furry dog mother? <laughs> What's the matter with you, Cinderella? Cinderella say, man, the uglified bears get to dance with the prince in the castle, and I have to sit here in this filthy puddle. Never you mind, my dear, say the furry dog mother, I'm gonna hit you on the head with this magic wand. <laughs> so she clunked Cinderella on the head with the magic wand, boing! <laughs> hit her on the head so hard, Cinderella sees stars, woo! <laughs> hit her on the head so hard, Cinderella sees stars and sun and moon and a rainbow, too. <laughs> and four flamingos on skateboards playing the accordion coming down the side of a mountain. And when her wake up again, her have a beautiful gown and beautiful glass slippers, and the pumpkin turned into a carriage, and six rats turned into two horses, and the whole works dragged Cinderella to the ball. <laughs> now, when the prince sees Cinderella, he don't want to dance with no more uglified bears, no way. <laughs> so Cinderella was four times more beautiful than all three ugly bears laid end to end. So the prince and Cinderella dance and dance and dance until, uh-oh, bong, 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 bong. Midnight come. And Cinderella says, excuse me, Mr. Princely person, but all is going to be transformated back to what it was before and I must flee. So she go running outside, hop in the carriage, but too late. No sooner had she set foot inside the carriage than it was turned back into a pumpkin and Cinderella is stuck inside the pumpkin. <laughs> Her head stick out the top of the pumpkin. Her foot stick out the bottom of the pumpkin. Arms stick out the side of the pumpkin. And all the horses turn back into rats and drag the pumpkin down the street. Bonkety, 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 bonk. All the rats go squeak, 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 because the rats cannot figure out how come are they tied to a pumpkin with string. So the rats go squeak, Cinderella go help! She think maybe the prince is gonna come rescue her, but you know what, midnight, Halloween, the prince turned into a werewolf. <laughs> he sniff around for pumpkin tracks and rat scats. <laughs> then he come lippity lip down the road, gonna gobble Cinderella all up. Well, pumpkin go bunkety 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 bunk, and the rats go squeak squeak, and Cinderella go help, and the werewolf go aroo! Man, it was midnight, you know. 
People try and get some sleep. <laughs> Stick their heads out the window. Now shut up, stupid parade down there. The love a parade of six rats and a pumpkin and Cinderella and a werewolf prince and finally the pumpkin come to a big hill and start to roll down the hill. Down at the bottom of the hill with a big well, pumpkin goes splash. And down in the bottom of the well was a handsome froggy with a crown on. And Cinderella kissed the froggy on the lips. And her was turned into a froggy, too. <laughs> and, and she married a frog and lived happily for never afterwards. And the handsome prince go polygamous married to three bears and they live happily also. And that <laughs> is the end of Cinderella and there ain't no moral to that story at all. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Cinderella and the Three Bears, a story told for an enthusiastic audience by Willie Claflin and his storytelling companion, the puppet Maynard Moose. And up next, we've got a story from Margaret Reed MacDonald. This is from a collection of stories called Fat Cat and Friends, and this one is called The Little Old Woman Who Hated Housework. Can you relate? Happy to bring it to you. Here's Margaret Reed MacDonald on the Appleseed. She had to make her bed. Flumpity, 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 flump, flumpity, 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 flump, flumpity, 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 flump. Every day she had to sweep her floor. Swishity, 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 And every day she had to do her dishes. Clackety 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 clack, clackety 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 clack, clackety 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 clack. Then she still had to do her knitting. Clickety 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 click, clickety 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 click, clickety 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 click. One day she was making her bed. Flumpity 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 flump. Flumpity, 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 flump, flumpity, 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 flumpity. She began to complain. Oh, work, work, work. How I hate it, hate it, hate it. No sooner were those words out of her mouth than there was a knocking at the door. And a voice called out. Your luck has come. Open the door. Let me in and you'll work no more. What? The old lady ran over and opened the door. There was a little fairy lady. The fairy lady knocked the old woman aside, ran over and grabbed the bed covers and began to make the bed. Flumpity, 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 flump. Flumpity, 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 flump. Flumpity, 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 flump. She's making my bed for me. How wonderful. I'll sweep the floor. The old woman picked up her broom and began to sweep the floor. 
Then there was a knocking at the door again. And a voice called out, Your luck has come. Open the door. Let me in and you'll work no more. What? Could it be another fairy? The old lady ran over, opened the door, and in came another fairy lady. Knocked that old woman aside, ran right into the middle of the room and grabbed the broom and started to sweep. Swish-a-dee-swish-a-dee-swish-a-dee-swish. Wow, they're making my bed and they're sweeping my floor. I'll just do the dishes. Clackety-clackety-clackety-clack. She began to complain again. Oh, work, work, work. How I hate it, hate it. Sooner were the words out of her mouth than there was a knocking on the door. Your luck has come. Open the door. Let me in and you'll work no more. The old lady ran at once to the door, opened it, and in came another little fairy lady. Knocked the old woman aside, ran over, and began to do the dishes. All I have left to do is sit down and do my knitting. The old woman sat down and began to knit. Clickety-clickety-clickety-click. Soon she complained about that too. Work, work, work. How I hate it, hate it, hate it. No sooner were those words out of her mouth than there was a knocking on the door. Your luck has come. Open the door. Let me in and you'll work no more. The old lady ran to the door and opened it. And yes, another little fairy lady. She knocked the old woman aside. She ran over, snatched up the knitting, and began to knit. Blumpity, 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 blump. Swishity, 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 swish. Clackity, 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 clack. Clickity, 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 click. Blumpity, 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 blumpity. Swishity, 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 swishity. Clackity, 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 clackity. Clickity, 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 clickity. Whoa, it's a little noisy. Hope they finish up soon. Blumpity, 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 blumpity. Swishity, 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 swishity. Clackity, 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 clackity. Clickity, 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 clickity. Blumpity, blumpity, swishity, swishity. Clackity, clackity, clickity, clickity. Blumpity, swishity, clackity. Clickety. Oh, I hope they finish soon. They're driving me nuts. And just then, the fairy stopped. It was silent in the house. The bed was made. Yes. The floor was swept. The dishes were done. Why, the knitting was all finished. Thank you, fairies. Thank you. You can go now. Thank you. But the fairies didn't go. They looked at each other clapped their hands and called, change places, 
changed places. And they all changed places. The fairy who had been making the bed went over and began to do the knitting. The fairy who had been doing the knitting went over and began to sweep the floor. The fairy who had been sweeping the floor went over and began to do the dishes. And the one who was doing the dishes went over and began to do the bed. And they tore all the work apart. They ripped up the bed, messed up the dishes, poured dirt on the floor, pulled out the knitting, and began all over again. Flumpity, 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 clump. Frizzity, 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 frizzity. Clackity, 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 clack. Clickity, 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 clack. Flumpity, flumpity, She ran downtown to the home of the wise woman. Wise woman, wise woman, you've got to help me. My house is overrun with fairies. Fairies? How did they get into your house? You didn't open the door and let them in, did you? Well, yes, I did. Oh, no. Why did they come to your house anyway? You weren't complaining, were you? Maybe a little bit. You'll never be rid of them. Well, here's what you can try. Go back home, stand outside your house, and call. The fairy hill is on fire. The fairy hill is on fire. They'll think their homes are burning, and they'll race home to save their children. As soon as they've left, you must go inside and lock the door and do everything I tell you. The old woman went home. She stood outside her house, and she called. The fairy hill's on fire! Oh, the fairy hill is on fire! The fairy hill's on fire! Oh, the fairies raced out the door up the hill so fast, thinking they would save their children. And the old woman went inside and locked the door. She did everything the old woman, wise woman, had told her. She tied the bedclothes in knots. That's what she told her to do. She turned the broom upside down in the corner, put the dishes upside down in the sink, pulled the knitting needles out and stood on them and sat in her chair and waited. She hadn't long to wait because those fairies came right back, knocking on the door. Your luck has come. Open the door. Let us in and you'll work no more. The old lady sat so still and did not move a muscle. Your luck has come. Open this door. Let us in and you'll work no more. The old woman did not say a thing. Your luck has come. Open that door. Let us in and you'll work no more. The old woman didn't say anything. The fairies were so angry. They called, all right then, bed covers, get over here and open the door. The bed covers said, we can't move. She tied us in knots. Oh my, all right then, broom, come open the door. The broom said, I'm upside down in the corner. My feet are in the air. I can't do a thing. Well then, dishes, come open the door for us. We're upside down the sink. We can't hop out. Oh my, said the fairies. Then knitting needles, it's up to you. Knitting needles, come over here and open this door. The knitting needles said, she pulled us out and threw us on the floor and she's standing on us. We can't come either. The fairies were furious. Then your luck has gone. We'll work no more. And they stomped off back home to their fairy. Oh, the old woman got up. She went over and untied the bed covers, smoothed out the sheets, smoothed out the covers, and made her bed. 
She picked up the broom, swept the floor, put the broom right side up in the corner. She went to the sink and washed those dishes, dried them and put them away just so. Then she sat down, put her knitting back together, and began to knit. Housework from Margaret Reed McDonald here on the Appleseed. And the last story we have to share with you today is from Sarah Malone, the bilingual storyteller, also happens to be a beekeeper in her free time. And uh, her stories are always filled with a new life, as she tells them. And this story is a traditional tale about a blind boy and a boy who can see. And while they're different, they're both filled with lessons that they're able to teach each other. We hope you enjoy the story, A Blind Boy Catches a Bird, from Sarah Malone here on the Appleseed. Once there were two villages. The people in both villages had decided to have a great festival where they would all gather together and celebrate for three full days. Now in the home village there was a boy who was blind. He couldn't go hunting like the other boys, but he was well known for his wisdom and his wonderful stories. From the other village there was a boy about the same age, and he was well known as a fabulous hunter. He could go into the forest alone with his blowgun and come back with all manner of prizes to share with his people. Now when the two boys met, the hunter was immediately curious about the blind boy. He had never met a boy who had no sight before, and he had heard the stories, and he hoped that the boy who was blind had heard stories about him too. And so he decided to invite the blind boy to go hunting with him the very next day. The blind boy said, Well, I've never gone hunting before, though I've surely walked in the forest and I know the path. Hmm, but if you show me, I'd be happy to go along. And so the next morning they set out, and the boy who was a great hunter had brought traps for birds, thinking that that might be the way to approach a hunt with a boy who had no sight. Now as they were walking along, at first the blind boy did quite well, for the path was well known to him. And then they came to a place in the forest he did not know, and he held on to the other's elbow for guidance. Now the sighted boy was amazed at the wisdom of the young boy who had no sight. He could hear things and speak them in ways that he didn't even know were imaginable. For example, Hmm, he said, there are warthogs nearby. Now the sighted boy had not heard a thing, but when he stopped and listened extra well, he could hear the sounds of warthogs in the distance, on another occasion, the blind boy said, Did you hear that? The birds are about to fly. I heard their wings unfolding. By and by, the two boys came to a marshland. It was a perfect place to set up their traps. The hunter immediately took his trap and 
hid it very well so that the birds would not see that there was a trap there. At that his stomach began to growl, and he remembered the feast that was taking place in the village, and he yearned to return. Thinking that the blind boy wouldn't notice, he said, Here, this is a perfect, well-hidden place. I'll put your trap here, even though it was in the wide open and not hidden at all. The two boys went back to the village, and they had a wonderful meal, and the next day they made their way back to the marsh to see what manner of birds they might have caught. Why, they were still a goodly distance away when the blind boy said, I can hear we've both got something in our traps. How could he know, thought the hunter. But sure enough, when they approached the marsh, he opened his trap and found, oh, a bird all right, but nothing to write home about. It was a plain brown drab bird, didn't even have a very nice song. Disappointed, he picked it up and he put it into his pouch and turned to where the other trap, out in the open, the blind boy's trap was. And in that trap was a bird, not an ordinary bird at all, a bird with as many colors as one would expect of something that had flown straight through a rainbow. It was a fine prize, and as he pulled it out of the trap, his heart was filled with jealousy, and he thought, why should this boy who is blind and cannot even appreciate the beauty of this bird have such a prize? He'll never know if I switch it with my own. And so he did. He opened his pouch, withdrew the small drab bird, handed it to the blind boy, and tucked the gorgeous colored bird in his own pouch. Now the blind boy's face had been glowing with joy when he heard a bird in his trap, and as he held the small bird that the hunter had given to him, his face fell. He fingered it and then put it in his pouch, but said nothing. The two headed back. They headed on home, and as they walked down the path, they came to a place where it was shady and cool, and the blind boy said, Let us rest here a spell. And when they had sat down, the hunter thought he might ask the other a few questions, things that he'd pondered and wondered about for a very long time. He had heard of the blind boy's wisdom. Turning to him, he said, Can you tell me why it is that people argue and fight with one another? Why is it that two people can actually get into a fist fight, for example, or wage a war? The blind boy turned, and with his sightless eyes, as if he were peering into the other boy's very soul, he said, People fight because they do to one another what you just did to me. The hunter's heart sank. He opened his mouth to speak, but not a word would come forth. Without saying anything at all, he opened his pouch, withdrew the beautiful colored bird, and handed it to the blind boy, who took it in his hands and fingered it, and the look of joy spread once again across his face. He too withdrew the other bird and handed it back to the hunter. The two sat and didn't speak a word for quite a while, listening to the sounds of the forest. And finally the hunter turned to the blind boy with one more question. How is it, he asked, when two people quarrel or disagree, they can make peace and become friends once again. 
The blind boy's face smiled, and he turned to his newfound friend and said, They do to one another what you have just done to me. And so it was that a blind boy, who was not a great hunter, taught a boy who knew many, many things a very important lesson, one that he carried with him for the rest of his life and shared with his children and they with theirs. Sarah Malone here on The Appleseed with the story, A Blind Boy Catches a Bird. Join us online at The Appleseed. BYUradio.org slash Appleseed is where you can find us. Or, of course, you can Google The Appleseed Podcast and subscribe for something new just about every day on the show. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.